Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. First Kings chapter seven, page one. Uh, but Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, so he finished all his house. He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon, its length 100 cubits, its width 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits, with four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams on the pillars. And it was paneled with cedar above the beams that were on 45 pillars, 15 to a row. And there were windows with beveled frames in three rows. And a window was opposite the opposite window in three tiers. And all the doorways and doorposts had rectangular frames. And window was opposite window in three tiers. So we get into obscure architectural language. But there's stuff in here that's really neat. So in chapter 6, it took them seven years to build the temple. And then the first word of chapter 7 is but. The word but might almost sounds like a counter argument. But in the Hebrew, the word but here is actually a conjunction, like the word and. And so it's a really weird, I, I don't know if your translation has and in it. Uh, mine has the word but there, and it's not. It's, it's actually and Solomon took 13 years to build the temple. So then you got these two year differences. Um, the other piece is at the beginning of verse 2, you see where it says he also built. If you look up the Hebrew, the word also is just not there. And so it just got added in in the English translation, or at least my English translation. So it's not actually there. So when you add the word also, it implies that the palace structure was built in addition to the temple. And so when you read it that and Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, so he finished all his house, he built the house of the forest of Lebanon. It's not that he did it in addition to the temple. It's that he did it as a project, right? So it's its own kind of piece of the kingdom that's being built. Remember, Solomon's building the kingdom of Israel. The temple is the first most important part of that, but there also has to be a palace. And so these are also, these are pieces that get done, but it's not that they're, um, somehow the, the palace is more important than the temple, and that, or that it took longer. So you can read the fact that the palace took 13 years and the temple took seven. Well, that's because the palace was more elaborate, so it took longer. And so you could read it that way. I think that, that it's elaborate, it's stunning. We're going to see that tonight. You could also, and it's probably more likely that the palace took longer because it had a lesser workforce. So last chapter, if you remember, it went through the numbers of people working on the temple. And it's likely the palace just was second priority, and that's why it took longer. Or the palace got the leftover workers. Either way, the temple gets a larger workforce, and it's highlighted where we don't even know the size of the workforce in chapter 7. So I would read that as Solomon's first ministry was to the temple, and his secondary ministry is to building the palace, which is the right order of things. If God's work is left as a second priority, then it doesn't get a blessing on the thing. So if I build my home, which Steph and I have had the last few weeks of doing, if you get your house in order, that's fine to do. Solomon does it. It should still take second priority to the kingdom of God and the things of God. And this is a tough idea for folks 
especially in America. It was a tough idea for the Israelites. They come back from Babylon and they all started building their own homes. And their priority should have been building the temple. And they have to kind of get that right when they get out of Babylon and put those things in order. Uh, Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yeah, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. If you put anything else in front of God, everything else gets lesser blessing from God. Put it this way, for me to be a good husband to Steph, I have to serve my God first or I'm just a human being being a husband to Steph. But if my relationship with God is right, I get wisdom into being how to, how to be a good husband too. If I seek first the kingdom of God, all these other things get blessed by that. And Solomon putting the palace first is one of those kinds of things. The temple gets first building, the palace gets second building. The writer put the book together in that order too for that reason. Chapter 6 is the temple, chapter 7 is the palace, and it's in order of importance when you look at it that way. So the details here are for kind of more than just a summer home. This is a this is a significant piece of the detail of Israel and what it is. It's beautiful when you go through the cubits in verses 2. Uh, those cubits are actually bigger than the temple. And a large part of that is the temple houses God, but the palace houses the entire civic order of the nation of Israel. Many more human beings have to fit in the palace than the one high priest a year that goes into the Holy of Holies. Also, the palace is not lined with gold, so that's there. So when you're thinking about this, we're not just thinking about lifestyles of the rich and famous, the Solomon edition. We're thinking about the administration center of Israel, where the diplomats would come and be housed, would come to this palace, where civic rule and judgment would happen, so the Supreme Court fits in this building, and all armory uh, essentials. When we get to chapter 10, it's going to show that the armory gets stored at the palace too. So this is the military, this is like the Pentagon, the Supreme Court, the Embassy Row, and the Capitol Building, and the White House all in one building, if that makes sense. So it's not just that Solomon's like doing this for himself, um, but he has first done the temple, he's put the kingdom first, and all of these other elements are going to be blessed in the kingdom of Israel because he put the temple first, or he put the things of God first. The house of the forest and 45 pillars. They make a big deal of this idea that there's all these cedar pillars in the building. What's really cool here is when you are traveling across the Middle East, and especially if you come from the south, it's rocky and it's barren. It's arid at best, even in the areas that are green. It is hot and dry in this part of the world. So when you come walking into the, this area of the world, what you see in front of you are all these cedar beams which would look like a forest. And the way they describe this is really particular. The beams being made of cedar with cedar going between them, it's almost like there's a canopy of wood up above. What this does is it provides shade. And in Middle Eastern architecture, you'll see these arches in the Muslim world. And in, in Solomon's temple, he had these trees, but it, this idea is the same. When you go underneath that canopy, it's nice and cool and shaded. And so you get that image. So the window opposite window is that you could kind of see right through the building, just like you can see through a forest. So you'd have one window here. The other thing is the two walls of windows would also add a row of what would look like beams because the beams would be in between the windows then. So you would have, what was it, five rows? Bonnie, correct me on this. I don't want to say it wrong. How many rows of beams were there why am i not seeing it 
four rows of cedar pillars, verse two. So four rows of pillar plus each wall, you'd have kind of like six rows of these beams and trees. And then the windows being opposite window on three different layers, you'd be able to kind of see through this at all different layers. So you'd walk into this area and there'd be kind of balconies up above too, where you could kind of see down and talk to people and it'd be this big gathering of people. So you'd walk into this house of the forest is what they called it, um, with this kind of image of trees being built into the architecture in three tiers. The size, size of this building or this house of the trees area, this front area, is about the size of half a football field. That kind of gives you a sense of how big it is. Um, and you'd have this kind of glory of Israel at its height, at least. That's what this would be. And this is just the entrance to the building, right? So the grand foyer is what this looks like. And so it got kind of this legendary feel. Um, excavations in Babylon and Iraq right now are showing a building that has fairly similar architecture. And what they did is they made things that would look like gardens. So some of the archaeologists are, are making the claim that what they're digging up right now are the hanging gardens of Babylon, but the gardens weren't actual plants. It was like the house of the cedars, that it was something that was structured so that it was like walking into a forest or a set of gardens, but they would build the gardens because there wasn't other shade to be had. So in verse 6 it says, He also made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits, its width was 30 cubits, and in front of them was a portico with pillars, and a canopy was in front of them. And then he made a hall for the throne, the hall of judgment, where he might judge. It was paneled with cedar from floor to ceiling. Beautiful. So you'd come into this house of the forest, half a football field, and then there would be a portico or like a hallway that was outside. Pillars on each side. If you think of Greek cities, this is easy to imagine. So it would just be a road and it would be lined with pillars on either side. And people would kind of wait in line there. That's where you would wait. And thank goodness there would be this canopy in front of them, verse 6, so it would be shaded. So if you're waiting to see the king at the throne of judgment, there's a line that goes from this beautiful kind of public area into this kind of nice organized way to line people up in a line so they're not fighting at the door. Everybody's going to kind of stay under the shade, which naturally puts them in a line. And they don't have to kind of enforce that. The room would be then to get audience with the king. And the throne is mentioned here. What's interesting is it made a hall for the throne, the hall of judgment. It's just an offhanded mention. But if you've been with us through the Old Testament, the throne has been one of those things that's been predicted for a long time. And the throne isn't described in this passage. It's just the throne. But think of how long we've been promised the throne of David would be given to the Son and that it would last forever. But now we actually have a building that's going to house that throne. So the importance of the throne is pretty significant in that God's made a place on earth where God's law will be carried out. And this is the throne from which that will happen. It's the throne that Jesus inherits later on. So it get, it's going to get a building. 1 Kings 9.5, I will establish the throne of your kingdom for, over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. And here it's just kind of getting offhandedly mentioned for the, not the first time, but the first time in actual practical existence. So the physical version will be described in chapter 10. It's a very important throne, but right now we're just talking about the building that houses it. Verse 8. And the throne of judgment, the hall of judgment, that's the Supreme Court building. That's where you go when you got a case that the elders in the city gates were not able to solve. We're going to take this one to Solomon. Paul appeals to Caesar 
So this form of law carries past Israel into the Roman Empire. If the lower courts aren't doing things right, you have a right to appeal to the higher court. We have the same thing in the United States of America. You don't like the ruling of a lower court, you can appeal your case and try to get it heard in a higher court. Solomon was never obligated to hear the cases, but he was known for spending entire days hearing case after case after case. He saw that as his duty. It's what he asked God for wisdom to be able to judge from that throne. Verse 8. And the house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall of like workmanship. So cedar beams, shaded areas. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken as wife. So he gets a house. It sounds like in verse 8 that there's kind of two parts of the house. There's a part where the diplomatic wife gets to live, and she probably decorated that with like Egyptian stylings and things like that. And then there's a house where Solomon lives, saying that these marriages were kind of political in nature. They weren't really romantic. But this is a third building in verse 8 that's all part of this kind of complex that's being described here. There's no description of his house because it wasn't public. This is his private quarters. So we get detailed description on the hall of the, the house of the cedars and the portico and the throne because that's where it was public for people to come in and see it. So we have this embassy kind of place with Pharaoh's daughter. Clearly when somebody comes from Egypt, they're going to stay with her in a place where the food's being cooked in Egyptian style and they can be comfortable. So you got a palace with three connected buildings and then Solomon's actual house. Then you get to verse 9. All of these, all three of these buildings, were of costly stones cut to size, trimmed with saws inside and out from the foundation of the eaves. Remember when they ran a saw, they couldn't just plug it in and have the power tools do it. When they say a saw, you're talking about human beings cutting rock. Somebody's got to wet the rock. Somebody's got to pull the grindstone over the rock, and it is... Try cutting a rock yourself with any kind of precision. It's worth doing for like 10 minutes to realize how much work this is, which is why they're bragging about it in verse 9. This is a really impressive feat that they're doing here. So, and also on the outside of the great court, uh, from the foundation to the eaves, and also on the outside to the great court, all these stones. Verse 10, the foundation was of costly stones, large stones, some 10 cubits, some 8 cubits, what they're describing there are stones that are massive. And we find these in the, in, the, in the archaeology. We find these stones that they're like, how did they cut these stones? They're like pyramid-sized stones. The stones in the temple, if you go to the Temple Mount, these are massive stones that are still there. And they're like, how did people in this era cut and move stones of this size? Sadly, we're not told exactly how, but that makes room for people to theorize how that happened. All we know is that they're there and they're all over the planet. And somehow or another, they had some intelligence on how to do this. Verse 11, And above were costly stones hewn to size and cedar wood. The great court was enclosed with three rows of hewn stones and a row of cedar beams. So were the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the temple. Okay, just like at the temple, around the outside of this complex was a row of multiple beams and pillars with these beams being shade. So think of like a pergola where they got little strips of wood, but it helps bring shade to these areas. So the courtyard at the temple, they would have classes in these areas. These are like the outside ring of the courtyard, but they would be shaded and double road so that you could meet there and be in the shade and, and be taught things. 
At the palace complex, same thing. You want to get away and have a conversation? You can get out of the crowd at the house of the Lebanon Cedars and go out to these outer courtyards and all around the complex was a wall where you could kind of sit and get some shade and, and have that kind of thing happen. So same kind of design on there. So anytime we see people building things, we know what they value. So either you build things because somebody's paying you money or you build things because you want to worship. And in this sense, you had workers that we talked about in the last chapter, but you get a sense of what's important to Solomon by what he's asking to have built. And what's important to him shines out here that when people come to the palace, they feel welcomed, the house of the cedars. It feels shaded and comfortable. It's hospitality. What a blessing to have a king that cares about the people that are waiting in line to see him, right? And I'm sure if you go to other pagan nations, it's maybe not that comfortable to wait in line to see the king because they don't want it to be that comfortable. So the idea that Solomon's creating spaces where there's order, the portico, that nice little line to get to the throne that naturally lines people up in line, he doesn't want chaos in the temple. He values that. The fact that he's got a diplomatic center for the Egyptians through his wife, um, you can start to see the values of Israel. They build the house of God they build a place for order, judgment, civic organization. In other words, it's a government that's built for the people. For the first time in history, this shows up. Even the idea that a government would serve people instead of dominate people, that's a revolutionary idea. And I don't want to just skip past it. When the Egyptians got a workforce, they built tombs. You can see what they value. When the Greeks got a workforce, they built huge theaters. You can see what they value, entertainment. When the Romans got big building crews, they built statues of themselves and coliseums where the lower people would kill each other. You know what they value. When the Americans get money to build things, we build stadiums where people cross chalk lines with balls in their hands. You can argue that humanity is advanced, or another argument is we have not advanced at all. <laughs> like We're actually building more and more worthless things with more and more elaborate money and, and resources. We're not necessarily building the house of God. In the Middle Ages, when there was this revival of Christianity, converting all these kind of pagan nations, what did they build? They built cathedrals, massive edifices to the glory of God. When America, when they were settling and they didn't have money to build things, what did they build in virtually every small town across this country? They built a little modest steeple made out of wood and they put a bell in the top to ring so that everybody could hear when God's word was going to be taught. And then on top of that, they put a cross. Very simple, very basic, but the entire community would come together and make sure that was the tallest thing in their town. When you look at American cities today and look at what's the tallest thing in their town, you know what they worship. And you know what's most important to people by what they build. So for Solomon, I just think that's a way into Solomon's heart and seeing what he was. Then you get to verse 13. Oh, one more note on just what you build. When verse 12 has this great court and there's all this area for learning, I don't think we should miss that Solomon was a person who loved learning. And the fact that he essentially built a school at the temple with this outer row, and then at his house he did the exact same thing, I just think that's consistency. There's no hypocrisy with Solomon, right? It's just that one thing. He loves those things, so he builds spaces for them. So verse 13, we introduce a new character. Now King Solomon sent and brought Huram from Tyre. Don't confuse Huram with Hiram. Hiram's the king of Tyre, who we made a deal with in previous chapters. Now he's dealing with this craftsman named Huram. We get some background. He was the son of a widow 
from the tribe of Naphtali, which means he's half Jewish, half Hebrew, and his father was a man of Tyre. He's half Gentile. He's a bronze worker. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all his work. Solomon delegates. You don't need to know how to do everything. You do need to know how to delegate if you want to be a wise person like Solomon. It takes time. Uh, verse 14 is an interesting verse. They're actually taking time to point out the heritage of the craftsmen. Why? Why would they spend an entire verse of God's word to tell us that he was half Jewish, half Gentile? I think there's a couple good reasons for that. One, if you go to 2 Chronicles 2.7, same situation, but listen to how they describe um, Huram. Therefore, send me at once, this is Solomon writing to Hiram, send me at once a man skillful to work in gold and silver and in bronze and iron and in purple, crimson, and blue. He knew how to do textiles and dyes and who has the skill to engrave with the skillful men who are with me in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David my father provided. When you get to Chronicles, there's a lot more detail on all this. In Kings, they just say he knows how to work with bronze, verse 14. In Chronicles, this guy had a lot more skill. He was kind of a Renaissance man, knew how to do a lot of different things. What's important here is that he was the best person on the planet to do what Solomon needed to do. When Moses built the tabernacle, God, it says that God actually gave the Holy Spirit and inspired the craftspeople. It doesn't say that here. So there's two ways to do work for God. One is direct supernatural intervention to give supernatural gifts and talents. But this Huram, he's been working his whole life at something he loves and building a craft to the point where he's known as the best in the world. That's just taking the gifts God's given you and developing them with diligence and time and discipline. And Huram, therefore, it's not there's no mention of some supernatural instilling. It's that he's been doing it his whole life. And I wonder if in the church sometimes we look for the supernatural instilling of things before we do the discipline and the work of developing the gifts God's already given us. Take what God's given you and work with it and do it in time. So Solomon hired talent. He hired people that had hired people that were working on that talent before the opportunity to work on the temple ever showed up. And I think that's kind of cool. So here he looks at Hiram, and he's developed his natural abilities over time. And God looks, I think, sometimes at looking at development of gifts in the same way. If you're developing your gifts, you're always working with them. You're making that time, even if you got a day job doing something else, you're always finding time to continue working on your gifts. We got a lot of artists in the room. Even if you're not working as an artist, you should be developing that gift of art because the thing God may want you working on later might not show up until way later in your life. And you've been diligently working with that gift for a long time before the opportunities show up. So in this sense, <laughs> inspiration for Huram is different than inspiration for Bezalel who worked with Moses, right? Bezalel was inspired Huram works until he finds inspiration. And I think that that's very different ways in the kingdom of God to get work done. Sometimes work is that flare of inspiration and then we get to work. Sometimes we get to work because the inspiration's waiting in the work. And we just do it and we get things done. We should note here that, um, that Huram then becomes a really significant figure. Solomon's wisdom is in hiring him, but he's the one that builds the temple. And he's both Hebrew and Gentile. In other words, Gentiles worked on the temple. This is a big deal when you get to the Jews in the first century. 
that think Gentiles should have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God had Gentiles involved at every single step. And we keep seeing that in the Old Testament. Yet they ignore all of it when they want to get exclusive of the Gentiles later on in life. Phoenicians of Tyre had many temples. They were a pagan society. So Hurim built a lot of worldly temples before he got the opportunity to work on God's temple. That's a challenging idea. Can the gifts God's going to use be developed prior to us being Christians? Can God be working in our life well before we come into the kingdom? So Hurum's expertise at being the best temple builder was building temples not to Yahweh where he got this reputation. So if you go to Phoenicia and you look at some of the ruins of Tyre, uh, there were many, many temples in that town. Somebody in that town during this period of history knew how to build temples all over the place. This was the master. He gets called in to do a work for the kingdom of God. Verse 15. He cast two pillars of bronze, each one 18 cubits high, and a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of each. These are super huge pillars. I didn't do all the measurements on this. Then he made two capitals cast of bronze to set on top of the pillars. They're already really tall, but then they're going to get a cap on the top that's five cubits. The height of the other capital was five cubits. And then he made a lattice work of wreaths of chain for the capitals which were on top of the pillars. Seven chains for one capital, seven chains for the other. Perfectly chained. All right, we'll get to this in a little bit. 18. So he made the pillars and two rows of pomegranates. Again with the pomegranates. So I had to do research on pomegranates this week. Above the network, all around to cover the capitals that were on top. Thus he did for the other capitals. So the caps would, if you build things out of bronze, like the Statue of Liberty is really beautiful, right? It was cast. That means it's not solid. You, when you, you can go inside the Statue of Liberty. So these pillars, people argue, well, the Bible has to be wrong here because if it's 12 cubits around, so a 15-foot circumference or 15 to 18 feet, and then it's going to be that many cubits high with another 8 feet of a capital on top, we're talking about 45-foot tall pillars as you know, with a 6-7 foot diameter to them. Massive. They're not solid. So the argument is, well, if those are solid, you couldn't move them with any kind of they'd be far too heavy made out of bronze. It doesn't say they were solid. It says they were cast. So they're like, well, it's cast. Then you pour it into a mold. You can't pour round things into a mold. So a careful reading of this, it would be built a lot like the Statue of Liberty. You would make a cast that would be arc-shaped, and then you'd weld them together, and you'd probably bring them in ring by ring and stack them. Evidence of this is all over Egypt. They'd have these big, huge stone pillars, they weren't all made like obelisks. Some of them were made where the capitals were brought in slice by slice. Greek temples fall apart, and you can see these stone slices. So when you get the bronze version of it, though, you can weld them all together. So these would be 45-foot-tall 45 pillars made of bronze right in front of the temple. They're on either side of the door. They dominate the door. The door looks very tiny with these massive pillars on either side. So the capitals which were on top of the pillars in the hall, were the shape of lilies, four cubits, massive. The capitals on the two pillars also had pomegranates above by the convex surface, which was next to the network. And there were 200 such pomegranates in rows on each of the capitals all around. Pomegranates starting to sound very important in this chapter. 
Then he set up the pillars by the vestibule of the temple, and he set up the pillar on the right and called its name Jochen. These are so massive they got names, right? We don't often name our pillars when we build them, but these clearly had names. And he set up a pillar on the left and called its name Boaz. And the tops of the pillars were in the shape of the lilies, so the work of the pillars was finished. Okay, the first feature that's noticed that they were bronze, they weren't stone. Most ancient world pillars that we dig up are stone. These are bronze, that's the first thing. Bronze throughout the Bible is an image of the world or the earth or the work that we do in this life. It's a, it, bronze is an image even of sin in some places in that it's the thing that connects to the world and it tarnishes. Bronze gets kind of cruddy looking. It gets a little, you know, cast on it and you got to clean it up and wash it. Um, so they have this outside. As the rain comes and things happen, over time these pillars would look kind of grisly looking, right? So the idea that that's noted and they're made out of bronze is interesting. Clearly bronze is going to be, has, has part of that imagery, just like it did with the tabernacle. The bronze was the metal that touched the earth. All the other metals were kind of up and off the earth or quoting other things. This meant the idea that it was made of bronze and the fact that they note it, I think this is kind of what's, what's the author trying to tell us? Verse 15, he cast two pillars of bronze and then told us the size. This is significant because in the history of the world, this is really, there's no evidence that something of this scale had been done out of bronze. Lots of evidence that the Egyptians knew how to build out of stone, but to do this out of bronze was kind of new. Here's why this is interesting, or will I get there? I'll get there in a second. The alliances that are required to make bronze in the first place require peace to do it. This is kind of interesting. If you want to get bronze, you can dig that up in areas that are fairly close, like Moab and Edom have lots of bronze, and they could mine that bronze from fairly close by. That's why they called it the Bronze Age, right? It was everywhere. It was where people lived. They could dig it. I'm sorry, the, the, uh, the copper you could get from there. But to make bronze, you need copper and tin, and you got to mill them together. About 80% copper, 20% tin, something like that. The problem with tin is... At this period in history, there's really nowhere to get tin except Britain. So that's a problem. How do you get bronze in Israel when they got to have trade with Britain to do it? Here's the answer. They're working with the Phoenicians. If you look at Phoenician history, they had boats going all the way down the Mediterranean Sea and up and down the African coast and up and down Europe on the side. The Phoenicians saw this as a business deal. Oh, you want tin? We'll get you tin. We'll get you more tin than you can ever imagine. So the Phoenicians would do this trade work and they would start bringing tin into the Middle East and they could then bring across the other side of Israel, they'd have to bring the copper from the mines of Moab and Edom. Some even argued Solomon had his own mines. So when you do that, you're bringing metals together from the ends of the earth in their understanding, two kind of known occupied areas of the planet. Tin mines in Great Britain are fairly endless. Um, I think I'm way ahead of myself here, by the way. I got an exact year for this I'll hit later, but to get tin from Britain was doable right up until I think the 1970s. So they mined the tin mines of Britain for 3,000 years of known history. Tons of tin in those mines. 
enough tin to do this? Well, that's a question we'll come back to later. Do note that it's made of bronze, and that's a feature. They're massive. They had names. The word Jachin means he will establish. The word Boaz really is hard to interpret because the only other use of Boaz in the Bible is somebody's name. Boaz was the one that married Ruth. So it could be that that had already happened when they built these pillars. It could be they were just honoring Boaz, right? Relative ancestor of David. If you take the root words, the best you can do to interpret this is strength or fleetness. If you put it next to he will establish, J. Ken, it's he will give strength. So in context, you may interpret it that way. But either way, who's the he we're talking about here? It's God's temple. This is God. God will establish. God will give strength. I think it's cool that as people would go up to the temple every year for the feasts, these are the questions five-year-olds ask. What are those pillars, right? And God gave the families a tool to talk about truths with their kids. Oh, that one's Jacob and that one's Boaz. That means God will establish. That one means God will give strength. And we're going to his house because he gives us, he establishes who we are. God gives us strength. We're putting God first and those pillars would be there as a way to talk about. Then the next question the kids would ask are, what are the things at the top? And there'd be these little sequences or chains and you could see there were hundreds of little balls on these chains. And they're just little balls. At the end of the priest robes, they had them sew these out of red, blue, and purple. And they were just little fabric balls or tassels at the end of the robe. And every other tassel would be a bell. So you'd have tassel, bell. So the only way that you would know they're pomegranates is if it was told to you those are pomegranates. Because they don't actually look like pomegranates. So then you get this idea that they would say, what are those things at the top of the pillars? Because the eyes go up when you see something like this. And what you see at the top is a big fruit lined with little chains of fruits. And, you, and so the, the only way you know that those things are pomegranates is because it says they were pomegranates and that's what they're supposed to be. It's like when a kindergarten draws you a picture, you're like, what the heck is this? And then they tell you and then you're like, oh, that's exactly what that is. You just go with it. Um, so there'd be all these little carved balls at the top he will establish, in him there is strength. So these would be permanent reminders to kings. When the high priest goes into the holy of holy, they would be absolutely dwarfed by these two pillars, making the high priest look really small. If you look at Babylonian, even Incan temples, the high priest would be at the top of the pyramid. They would ascend the stairs and stand over the people in this big, majestic way. God's temple is exactly the opposite. They climb the stairs and they look like a little peon next to the two pillars because they're not that important. And humanity gets put in a truthful position against these pillars. So they're mindful that God's reigning the country. God's the one that gives them strength. God established their nation. They didn't do it. So some thought these were illusion, illusions. Like there's the, these are pillars. Like we followed the pillar of smoke. We followed the pillar of fire. Problem is then why didn't they name them smoke and fire? So that's an odd one, but I just want to let you know that one's floating around out there if you hear it. God establishes, God gives strength. That's what they actually name them. The point here is that these pillars were a thing of legend, right? They were talked about like the Colossus of Rhodes, the Pyramids of Egypt, the Temple of Holoconarsis, the Temple of Zeus. These were the pillars of Israel. And they were stunning. They were things that people would talk about. So people came from all over the world to see this. And then Solomon would host them at the house of the, Lebanon, of the cedars and he would bring them in for dinners and he would 
he began trade with almost every other nation of the world. This is part of what marked Solomon's empire. Part of why they're coming is to see these legendary pillars, this temple of mighty temple. So from the outside with the capitals, they'd be anywhere from 35 to 40 feet high, massive. Jeremiah 52, 21. Now concerning the pillars, the height of one pillar was 18 cubits, measuring a line of 12 cubits that you could measure the circumference and its thickness with four fingers. It was hollow. This was amazing to me when I read, I was reading through all this stuff about, well, how could the pillars be there? And if they were, if they were cast, then they had to be solid. And I got that a lot of times theologically, we read a verse in the Bible and then we say, if this, then that has to be. We had this discussion this morning. If somebody's called, then it must be that there's people who aren't called. Why do we make that jump when the Bible doesn't say it? The Bible says people were called. That doesn't mean that there are people that weren't called. And, God, and the Bible actually does say in another place that God came to save the sins of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It actually says it in other places. This passage in Jeremiah is funny. You can get lost in the details in Kings going, well, if they're cast, they must be solid, but the Bible never says they're solid. If you go to another place in the Bible, in Jeremiah 52, 21, it actually says the pillars were hollow. And they were the thickness of four fingers. That's a lot less bronze that you're using on these things. And it makes it movable and it works. A lot of times in the Bible when we get confused or we have arguments about things in the Bible, it's because we haven't read the whole thing. And we don't let the Bible speak for itself and make its own arguments. And we don't trust that what it says here actually is what it means. So I, I just thought that was an interesting thing there. Okay, the sea and the oxen. We got lots more symbolism tonight. And he made the sea of cast bronze 10 cubits. That's about 15 feet from one brim to the other, and it was completely round. So this big, huge bowl, about 15 feet. They called it the sea because there's a lot of water in it. Its height was five cubits, about eight feet tall. That's a problem. And a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. This is massive, big bowl, about as big as this room. But at five cubits, that makes it about seven and a half feet high, just above where I can reach. Or for an average sized person in this era, the average size was about five foot five, not as tall as today in America. It would be right at the edge of the fingertips for a five foot five tall priest to reach up and wash their hands. The sea was for cleansing of the priests. So it's just at the edge of their reach that they can get up there. There's people that argue that the sea, well, we'll keep reading here, verse 24, below its brim were ornamental buds encircling it all around, 10 to a cubit all the way around the sea. And the ornamental buds were cast in two rows when it was cast. And it stood on 12 oxen, three looking to the north, three looking to the west, three looking to the south, three looking to the east, the same exact order that they listed the tribes of Israel around the ark when it moved in Israel. Three this way, three this way, three this way, three that way. And the, and the sea was set upon them, and all of their backs parts pointed inward. Their, their butts were under the bowl, their faces were facing out. And it was a hand's breadth thick, four fingers, just like described in Jeremiah with the pillars. And the brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. In other words, it kind of splayed outwards like a flower does. Um, and it contained 2,000 baths. With that, bath was a measure of water, like we would say gallons, right? So a lot of people like, this is, a, this is lots of theories on this, 
when the priests wash, they're supposed to wash their hands and their feet. So when they talk about this brim, uh, that was a hand's breast thick, um, we're talking about the edge of the bowl there. There's people that think the brim could be that, like there was a saucer under this cup. And the whole thing had a plumbing system. So these flowers around the side um, would be like faucets that could be turned on and off. So multiple priests could go up to this and they could either reach their hands in to watch up high but not see the water. I think symbolically that's interesting. And then their feet would be standing in like a saucer that was also filled with water. Other people argue there was plumbing that went through the oxen so that they had like a little faucet. Maybe you'd turn one of their horns and then the water would come on and you could wash your hands and then you could wash your feet too. But there was this source of water, 2,000 baths would be about 11,000 gallons of water. So a great source of water. You'd have water people bringing it up, the Gibeonites, and they'd keep this thing full and then there'd just be water that would continue to be, flow and keep the hands and the feet of the priests clean. Uh, priests would officiate at the Temple Mount, marble all over the place. They often officiated barefoot. So they'd clean their feet and that's what touched the ground on the Temple Mount was these cleansed feet. Be about 40 tons of weight, extremely heavy. You couldn't like come in the night and rob this thing. Like it would take a, a small army of people to move it. Um, and inside then would be lined. We know from Exodus 38.8, the inside of this bowl was lined with mirrors. You remember that? So the women, when they came out of Egypt, gave all their mirrors, images of vanity, and they gave them over for storage to be part of the Temple Mount. And they were to line the basin of the sea. So if you did get to look inside, which you really couldn't do, kind of like you can't see inside the Holy of Holies, but if you kind of jumped up or something and you had a good, good ups, you, what you'd see inside is the light reflecting out of the sea and the mirrors underneath it on a sunny day would probably make this thing seem to emanate with light when you walked up with it. So it'd be kind of an impressive thing, all made of bronze. It's what touches the earth. Hands breath thick, um, along with the pillars. This is notable, it's huge. We're adding up a large amount of bronze. And I, don't, I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, but we're adding up a, a bronze to where there's people that say, there's just, this is so much bronze, it's hard to imagine that they gathered this much. I think that's why the writer is telling us. It's because this is so impressive to get this much wealth accumulated in one spot on the planet. This sea then becomes the thing that cleanses people from sin. Other people say this is an image of the Red Sea parting as they came out. Other people say it's an image of the floodwaters of Noah that God often cleanses with water and helps save his people with the cleansing through water. Either way you look at the imagery of this thing, uh, the practical purposes was the cleansing of the priests so they would be able to work in the Temple Mount. Um, the four tribes and the four oxen facing four directions Four often is the number of the world, or not in the terms of like man on the world, but the actual physical planet. So we say we went to the four corners of the world or the four points of the compass. And the idea when you see that is that Israel was for the world and so is the cleansing of the temple. It's for the world. It's not just for the Jewish people. Lots of imagery. Moving on to the carts and the lavers, verse 27. He also made 10 carts of bronze. Four cubits was the length of each cart, about six feet. Four cubits was its width, three cubits was its height, and this was the design of the carts, that they had panels and the panels were between the frames. This is really tough to translate. The best idea is it's like a panel door that has like the strips of oak down the middle, but then a much thinner panel in between the strips. 
and that on those little strips, that on the panels that were between the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim, and on the frames was a pedestal on top. So below the lions and oxen were the wreaths of pillated work. In other words, these strips around the sides of the carts were highly ornamentally decorated. And then in the cart sat a big bowl. Not as big as the sea, but there's these, just these little ones. Below the lions and the oxen were wreaths of pillated work. Every cart had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze, and its four feet had supports. And it had supports. Why does it have wheels? This much bronze, it's not like a wheelbarrow. You're not moving these things, right? They're way too heavy to be moving. The wheels are an image of Israel being a mobile nation up until the building of the temple. They've been, for, for hundreds of years, they've been traveling. So these are images of travel, but they're more like the wheels you see in a museum, not the wheels you see on an actual road, right? So they have supports to hold them or keep them in place. And it's opening, verse 31, I'm sorry, Every cart had four bronze wheels, axles of bronze, and its four feet had supports. Under the laver were the supports of cast bronze besides each wreath. Its opening inside the crown at the top was one cubit in diameter, and the opening was round and shaped like a pedestal, one and a half cubits on the outside diameter, and also the opening were engravings. But the panels were square, not round. So square sides with a round top. You're fitting, literally fitting a round bowl in a square box. So can it be done? Apparently it can. All sorts of ways you can do this. The panels were square, not round. And under the panels were the four wheels, and the axles of the wheels were joined but to the cart, and the height of the wheel was one and a half cubits, and the workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of the chariot wheel, which meant they had axle pins, their rims, their spokes, their hubs, were all of cast bronze. So it looks like a, a spoked wheel that you would see on a chariot, but it's clearly for show and an image of things. It's too heavy to move around. Verse 34, and there were four supports at the four corners of each cart. Its supports were part of the cart itself. And on the top of the cart, at the height of the half cubit, it was perfectly round. And on the top of the cart, its flanges and panels were of the same casting. It's all made of bronze. And on the plates of its flanges, on the panels of the engraved cherubim, lions, and palm trees. Now, again, with the palm trees. Wherever there was a clear space on each, with wreaths all around. Anywhere that was flat, you had a carving of a lion, a palm tree, a cherubim, and, or an oxen, all just all around this thing. It's beautiful. I read like two, three theories on what all this symbolized, and they all just seemed hokey, and none of them were backed up with other scriptures. So I read that as, you can imagine this means what you want to. What they essentially are in practice is this is a place where the lower priests were able to clean up when they were done with their work. So you would come into the temple courtyard and use the sea for ceremonial cleansing, but when you were all done, you could use the water that these carts had and just clean up and be done with your shift. So it was kind of a, a, just a very practical use to these. Um, verse 37 Thus he made 10 of these carts. All of them were the same mold, one measure, one shape. They all looked the same. Then he made 10 lavers of bronze. Each laver contained 40 baths, and each laver was four cubits. And on each of the 10 carts was a laver. So they put a giant bowl in the top of these square carts. And he put five carts on the right side of the house, five on the left side of the house, and he set the sea on the right side of the house towards the southeast. So what's super funny, and Grant wanted me to show a picture of this, 
if you, you find some kooky stuff online and there's people that believe the layout of the temple courtyard, and I'm saying this because I think it's ridiculous, but I think it's also great, great joy to see the extents people go to. They argue that the Holy of Holies is the head, right? And the door of the temple is the mouth. And the, the wash basin is the stomach. And that the courtyards leading into it are like giant legs that stretch out this way. And when the high priest was done with his work, he probably had the apartment on the other side of the temple because there's apartments on three sides. So the turban or the hat would actually sit at the top on the other side of the Holy of Holies. And these five lathers, five on each side, must be the fingers of God. It's silly, and they make a little robot picture <laughs> that looks ridiculous. When you read too much of that nonsense into this, you can get lost in stuff that isn't helping you get closer to Jesus. Um, and the Bible doesn't tell us in any other reference what these things were for, other than the fact that they had very similar images to the rest of the temple courtyard. So we often see the lion is associated with power and strength. We often see the oxen associated with work and earthly toiling of the soil. Um, cherubim are always associated with heaven. So some of these things are clearly connected and they're all part of the thing. It could just be that like when we decorate a room, we want things to match and fit. And these very practical carts were made to fit the temple courtyard and the designs all around. So it all had a look to it. Um, at least the point the writer's making is that it matched because it's making those side points. Um, 10 square carts, they're all cast. It's a generalized word. They cast these parts and then they'd assemble them together, put these here. All of this were still under the category of Hurum. This is all being kind of orchestrated by one very skilled craftsman. So we get a summary of the inventory in verse 4 and it comes back to Hurum because this is kind of all his work. Hurum made the lavers and the shovels and the bowls. Remember they did the burnt offering, they'd keep the ashes because they're not going to pull blood in the wash basin. They'd take the ashes and sprinkle that into the sea. So that, that burnt offering was part of cleansing the temple courtyard. Everything got blood splashed on it, but the sea and the, probably these lavers had ash put into them as the cleansing piece of the sacrifice. So he made the shovels for that, and he made the bowls. Um, so Hiram finished doing all the work that he was told to do for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top, and the, on top of the two pillars, the two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals, which were on top of the pillars, 400 pomegranates. They keep saying pomegranates. For the two networks and the two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars. Then the 10 carts, the 10 lavers on the carts, one sea, the 12 oxen under the sea, the pots, the shovels, the bowls, dot, dot, dot. It just goes on. All these hand tools then, everything matched. It's like going into a really quirky house where people like gold and even the silverware has a gold tint to it and the trim has gold and everything's just gold, 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 gold. At some point, it, it's, it, you can see the message. When you go into the temple courtyard, everything you see is either stone or bronze. Stone or bronze. Everything's of earth from the outside. You go inside the temple, everything's of gold. And so there's this clear image of that there's a heaven waiting just outside of what we can see. It gets set up all the way back in history. In Chronicles, there's an interesting kind of thing here. The largest feature of the courtyard is not mentioned in this text. It's kind of interesting. So they go through this whole list and they don't mention the biggest thing in the courtyard. In First Chronicles, when they go through this list, they actually tell us about the altar. 
And in this passage, they don't tell us about the altar. I don't want to read too much into that, but I just want to point out that there's a difference between the Chronicles passage and this one and what they're trying to tell us. Um, or it could just be that Hiram didn't work on the altar. So the altar was made without cut stones, and so he's not part of that. Um, the 400 pomegranates. It's time to talk pomegranates. So I told you before I was curious about this and the palm trees. I got a wonderful um, text through Steph, um, through our friend that's in Cambodia, who goes, oh, I get the palm trees. And then I was looking online at images inside the Holy of Holies, and there's palm trees carved into the gold and cedar all the way around. If you're in the Middle East, what do palm trees represent? An oasis. And so when you're in a place where palm trees require a deep water system underneath them, it's why you find them by the coasts on islands. So when you're in, walking through the Middle East and you see palm trees on the horizon, you think rest because there's fresh living water feeding those trees. And the same is true of the temple of God. When you come to God's sanctuary and you come to God's house, there's rest waiting for you. The image that's inside the Holy of Holies is mirrored by the house of the cedars of Lebanon that Solomon's built. Same idea, that there's rest that's been made. And in the same way that there's rest in God's house, Solomon's making rest for the people because hospitality is part of what God does. And so that image of hospitality and rest and peace, uh, my Jewish friend said that they would use palm tree oil in the in the 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 word lamp or the lamp of the word and that was palm tree oil that got used in there so you also get the idea that this idea of rest and shade and living water being located or identified by these palm trees also was the source of where the teaching of the word happens and there's some connection there it's kind of neat but then on to the pomegranates why pomegranates how many people have had a pomegranate and know what one looks like Okay, good. No, Mandy, you never had a pomegranate? It's a reddish-looking kind of fruit that's fairly ugly, about this big, about the size of a softball. And when you open it up, it is, it is full, of, of, full of little tiny fruit-covered seeds um, called arils. Um, so if there's 400 pomegranates, in a pagan world, pomegranates were also used. They were generally an image of kind of prosperity, fruit, health. They were seen as like the heart fruit because they're just blood red. And there's no way to open a pomegranate without spilling blood everywhere or fruit juice everywhere, right? So there's, there's definitely this image between fruit juice. It made me think, well, maybe instead of grape juice for communion, we might be using pomegranate juice. But anyways, I don't think it matters to God that much. Um, Second Chronicles notes that some of them are put on top of the pillars and some of these pomegranates that get made by Huram are put around the robes of the high priest and the, and the temple priests that are doing this. So very little pomegranates, including the big ones that were at the top of the thing. Again, you get back to the kid coming up with their family going, what are those chains on top of the pillars? Well, those are pomegranates. Why are there, like this is what kids ask, why are there pomegranates up there? Because there's something really unique about pomegranates. They're kind of a special fruit. They're not like every other fruit. Most fruits you get, or fruits that were known of in the Middle East at this time, are fruits you bite into. You can bite into an apple. You can bite into a pear. Plum, you can chomp right into it. No work involved, no effort involved. If you're Lisa, you even bite into oranges. You just, just bite into an orange and start eating it. A little bitter for my taste. We tried it, Lisa, but 
it's kind of bad. So if you got 300 of these on the priest robes and there's 100 of them up on the top of these capitals, there's a significant imagery here as there is with everything else with the temple. Pomegranates um, are also woven in through the fabric work of this. Back in Exodus 28:33, beneath the hem of the robe, you make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet around the hem of your robe and gold bells between them all the way around, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robes round about. And it shall be upon Aaron to the minister and his sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord when he comes out so that he doesn't die. Pretty significant imagery being played into here. Pomegranate bell, pomegranate bell, pomegranate bell. And if Aaron doesn't have this going on, that's part of what keeps him alive. Well, if gold is an image of heaven and bells are kind of a sound, along with incense, bells are often used as a communication tool. So you would pray and do incense, and that was kind of this image of prayer, communication with God. Then what's a pomegranate? Why is it of equal, like, alternating? So gold bells of an image of heavenly work, but these pomegranates seem cast in bronze are also this image of the earthly work that we do. So if our heavenly work is prayer, and our earthly works represented by a pomegranate, then I want to know a lot more about pomegranates. And we're going to kind of finish on this tonight. So I'm going to take my time with the pomegranates. I hope the palm trees were a blessing. I thought that was great. So pomegranates escalated to the level of safety feature for robes, like, like as important as jumping out of a plane with a parachute, was going into the Holy Holies with pomegranates on your thing. So these, the, this image or this thing that's there that's on both the priest's robes and it's up there for all to see, making sure the kids ask about it when they come, this is one of the great lessons of the Jewish tradition. The pomegranates then are an image of earthly life that we live for God. And so the, the, the high priest having these on them is a mediator between heaven and earth. So he has both bells and pomegranates. He does things that have heavenly repercussions like we do in the church. We pray that has heavenly impact. But we also do our day-to-day -day work, and it goes alternating. I think it's really cool. It's pomegranate bell, pomegranate bell, golden bell, no noted on the materials for the pomegranate because the pomegranates are just all the other stuff. So they're made of fabric over here, and they're made of bronze over here. It's just the stuff of this world. So here's kind of an interesting thing. The purity of the priest at all times is part of what keeps them in their service. We talked about this this morning. In Exodus, we have the fabric of the purple, blue, and red, little balls or tassels on the robe. Here we get them cast in bronze, and they're put on there. And then you have this distinction of the pomegranate, and that how we eat it is different than every other plant. So let's walk through that. Pomegranates are the messiest of all fruits, you can argue. There's other fruits out there that you don't bite into, like bananas. I get that. But you don't bite into a banana and see thousands of seeds or hundreds of seeds. You open up, and a banana is so easy, you just peel it and chomp it. You still can't do that with a pomegranate. You can cut it open, but you can't just chomp it. Or it's extremely messy if you do, and it doesn't taste very good. But they're wondrous to eat. If you've had a pomegranate, the flavor is so worth it. You've got grapes that come in clusters, but you can just pluck a grape and eat it. right? And maybe you get one or two seeds. In an apple, maybe you get five seeds, three or four seeds. In an orange, in a bad orange, you get like five to eight seeds. Plums and pears, couple seeds. Well, plum, you get one seed in the middle of it. How many seeds are in a pomegranate? 300. So closer to a strawberry, but a strawberry, you can just chomp into it, and the seeds are on the outside. Pomegranates, the seeds are on the inside. 
So every angle that you look at this, they're a truly unique kind of fruit. And God thinks that's important. Like he made these fruit this way for a reason because he wanted them on his temple and on the priests. Like he designed the world. He designed this image. So pomegranates are really messy to eat. To even begin to eat a pomegranate, you have to get in by cutting it open. Blood has to be shed for the pomegranate process to begin. And it's messy. And there's red liquid everywhere you go. Like they're a horrible plant to eat. If you're worried about your carpet, eat them outside. But they're totally worth the work. They're worth the effort. People with patience that will take their time with a pomegranate, it's a glorious thing to do. Pomegranates take work and time. And if you want every little arrow on the inside to keep its little thing, you actually have to be kind of careful with them. If you just mow through one of these things, you'll pop the arrow and the juice will flow everywhere and it's wasted juice. It's shed in vain. But if you take care of it, your effort is that none of the seeds would perish. You want to get it open in such a way that you, you save as much of that as possible and you get as much fruit from it as possible. Seeds make the next plant. If you're sloppy with a pomegranate, it won't replant itself very easily. If you're careful with a pomegranate, you can get hundreds of plants from one, basically one pomegranate. It's very different than the other ones. These little arrows are pretty fragile. If you mishandle them, they burst. But inside of each one is its own seed. And that makes it so that we have this image of an eternal life and that the seeds are inside the seed. And, they, and they, if you take care of them, the process of making pomegranate seeds is a careful, cautious, meticulous process. It, it requires a shepherd, it requires somebody to harvest it, it requires somebody to take care of those seeds, to dry them out properly, and to get them into the ground to get the best fruit possible. So if, say, God gives you life, he gives you a new life in Christ, every day you wake up, there are opportunities to plant seeds. And he tells parables of people that would cast seeds. And some of the seeds bear fruit and some of them don't bear fruit. I wonder if when Jesus talked about casting the seeds, he was thinking of well-cared-for pomegranate seeds and not just any old seed, right? So this image of harvesting, this process that it takes, the attention and effort, the color of it being blood red, you get lots of ideas about our life here on earth is about planting seeds and harvesting them and being careful with them, taking each opportunity we have. I wonder if when we get to heaven, part of the reason that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth is believers saying, look at all the seeds I screwed up on. Look at all the opportunities God gave me and I just screwed them up because I wasn't careful. I wasn't even paying attention. So I had all these little arrows and I didn't get the fruit out of them like I should have. But other servants take what God's given them and they bury it and they don't get any fruit. But there's other servants that get tenfold, a hundredfold out of what God's given them. So you take these images of the pomegranate, the work it takes to harvest them, what it takes, and then you alternate that with the gold bells of prayer Man, day-to-day -day work, harvesting seeds, praying to the Lord. One can't exist without the other. What are you praying for if you're not praying for the fruit or the seeds or the harvest? If you're not working on the harvest, if you're trying to do all those things without prayer, the Holy Spirit's not in it, you're not going to do it well. Pomegranate, bell, pomegranate, bell, pomegranate, bell, all the way around the robe. That's the noise the priest would make. That's the noise a Christian should make. Our day-to-day -day life, our spiritual prayer our earthly side, our heavenly side. And we walk through life in a way that things are going to grow and that you get the pro as much produce out of your life as you can get. 
your life is filled with seeds. Covered with the blood of the lamb, there is a potential that you can access those seeds and get them planted in the lives of other people. Awesome imagery. Wonderful imagery. So that's what the little Jewish families are talking about with their kids as they're walking up to the Temple Mount to do their ceremonies. And it's like when we tell Christmas stories, they tell that's what the pomegranate is. That's what it's for. Nothing grows without work. Nothing bears fruit without prayer. Nothing in our life is worth anything without the time and attention to take care of the things we're given. Take the responsibilities God's given you, those little arrow seeds, and make sure you get every drop of delicious juice out of them. That's kind of our prayer for everybody we know, isn't it? We want people's lives to bear fruit and to be delicious and to be wonderful and joy-filled. Then you get to verse 45 in our chapter. That's my thing on pomegranates. I hope you're blessed. All these articles which Hiram made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord were burnished bronze, things of the earth. And in the plain of Jordan, the king had them cast in clay molds between Succoth and Zeratad. And Solomon did not weigh all the articles because they were so many, the weight of the bronze was not determined? Well, that's a challenge. It's just saying, let's, let's figure this out and weigh it out. The pillars would be about 140 tons of bronze. The estimates are that they were a, a four-finger, two- to three-inch casting, uh, the sea was a hand thick, we know that. It would be another 200 tons of bronze, indicating the fact that the sea was heavier than, than the pillars. The pillars were definitely hollow, just like Jeremiah says. Verse 46 says there was a huge foundry set up by the Jordan River. The Jordan River would be a source of water, which you definitely need if you're going to run a foundry, because if you're going to heat things up, you need a way to cool them down. So they have that right next to the river. That means they're pulling in copper from the east, they're pulling in tin from the west, they bring it all, and, and think of the work of this. If you want to heat up that much metal and turn it into bronze, think of the amount of fire and fuel you've got to have. Not only that, but if you're going to cast pieces of this pillar, they had to carve all the molds out with all those decorations in them. So when you made the carts, thankfully, they could use the same mold a few times. But if they're pouring that all in, it means it all has to be pre-carved. You have to have giant pieces of wood or metal to do that carving in. And then you have to be able to pour the hot metal into it. And then it's all timed out. How do you take that much metal and pour it into a mold and get it to set before it gets all messed up? You're going to break molds sometimes, so you got to redo it all. This endeavor was huge. you got people getting wood for fuel, water for cooling, building the furnaces, making the molds, carve people. And it's not that Hiram did this all himself. He had thousands of people helping him with this effort. Then you got to have people in the mines getting the metal. you got to have the metal coming over. You need people to transport it all. You need sailors to the west to go all the way up to Britain to bring tin down and get that going. So likely you've got this first time on earth, like the, the Egyptians did most of what they did in-house. And yeah, they built some cool pyramids, but they were images unto death. This is an image unto life that gets done on earth and it draws from all parts of the known world as it's built. The Phoenicians then do all this work. They see it as a massive business enterprise. This is all just a trade bonanza for Phoenicia. Phoenicia gets so rich that a generation or two later, they're going to be conquered by, the, uh, by other nations and just because they have money. like They're just raided for their wealth. And they make, and Hurum then is overseeing a global trade network for Solomon to make all this happen. He's a pretty important guy. Um, the writer thinks he's so important that we just took a whole chapter with what Hurum did. So, verse 48. Thus, 
because of everything we just read, thus Solomon has all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord. Now we're back to the temple. The altar of gold, the table of gold on which the showbread was set, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right side and five on the left in front of the inner sanctuary, with the flowers and the lamps of the wick trimmers of gold. Even the wick trimmers were golden. The basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, the censers of pure gold, the hinges of gold. Wait, the hinges of the door were made of gold. Nothing inside the temple was made of anything else than gold or cedar covered and encased in gold. Everything you visually saw was golden when you walked in. The hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner room, the most holy place, and for the doors of the main temple hall, which means that when you're standing on the outside of this building, you could see the gold hinges. There would be this, this doorway that you would see, like the gates of heaven. And every now and then you would see that door open up for the priest to go inside. And the best we could get as just an outsider is a glimpse at the inside of the first room and we would see this flash of gold. Especially if they did it right when the sun was hitting it right. You'd just see that room just light up. Just a hint of heaven. Even the most mundane things, hinges, wick trimmers, are made of this heavenly gold that never tarnishes. And today they have all these things built and ready in Jerusalem right now in 2002. Everything that's about an implement, the Temple Institute has cast, they've made it, and the nation of Israel is growing in wealth and prosperity. They're committing a portion of what they do to getting all of this ready to go. The only thing the Temple Institute is missing is a temple. This is exciting because you see at the end of days, there's actually a temple in some of the prophetic writings. And right now we're looking around the world going, there's no temple. So this created a whole realm of theology called replacement theology. Well, it must mean that things have been replaced, that God's changed his mind, that he didn't really mean, this was all symbolic here and there wasn't actually a temple temple. But now you've got Jewish people in control of the land. That's interesting. And they're very interested in rebuilding a temple. They just need to know where the same problem that David had before God told him where, right? So they're, in, they're just circling in the same situation. Verse 51, so all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things which his father had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Really, this is the most significant thing Solomon does. You could argue he wrote the Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, but for his practical kingship, the thing he did is he built this copy of heaven, this image of heaven that's going to be part of the practice of Israel for nearly a thousand years. And then Jesus shows up and he's the real deal, as we're studying in Hebrews. And he fulfills all of these images. Note that while Solomon is busy doing God's work, we don't see that Solomon's getting in a lot of spiritual trouble right now. So the first part of his kingship, when he's doing the work of building the kingdom of God, he stays out of trouble. Oftentimes people say, I'm struggling with sin in my life. What are you doing for service? If you're tending to the things God has as an opportunity, if you're taking care of those little seeds in your pomegranate, then you don't get in as much trouble with sin. The amazing thing is if when I'm at a Bible study, I'm pretty sure I'm not in sin. Like I get just a little break from sin when I'm worshiping. When I'm doing fellowship with other believers, I tend to sin less. When I hang out with my dad, I don't do things that would embarrass me in front of my dad. Like, it's amazing that when you're with family, godly friends, in fellowship, reading the word, we tend not to do the things that bring shame in our life. 
while Solomon's busy doing what God told him to do to build this temple, he's staying out of trouble. By chapter 11, this will change because it's finished in verse 51. He's kind of done what he think the Lord had for him to do. And he thinks then his work doesn't continue with the day-to-day faithfulness. And I think that's where Christians get in trouble is it, when we're in that grind of just day-to-day life, we tend to find other things to entertain ourselves that get us into trouble. So as with Solomon, if I look at what you do with your time and I look at what you do with the things of God, your resources, I can tell you what you worship. And it's not rocket science. We can all tell you that. The thing is your wallet is private and your calendars are private. But if you want to know where am I at with God, Look at your calendar, look at your budget, and you can see where you're putting your things. So that idea of just being like less controlling of your calendar and more generous is a way in which we can serve our Lord. So Solomon puts all of the things that his dad had collected, the silver, the gold, the furnishings, he puts them into the house of the Lord and he fills up those treasuries. Those treasuries are going to drain throughout Israel's history because other kings won't do that. And that's part of the failings of the kings of Israel. So they don't tend to the things of God first and everything else kinds of fall apart. That's kind of the story of the rest of Kings and Chronicles is just they, they, this covenant fails too. But at this point, we're like at the peak top of this kingly covenant, the Davidic promises that are there. And Solomon's doing pretty good at this stage of his life. And he's accomplished something that not only has another Israelite leader not accomplished, But you could argue that this really hadn't been accomplished anywhere in the world up to this date. The Phoenicians knew trade, but they didn't do this kind of project. You had Hurim that knew how to do construction, but they were building temples to other gods, right? They had big monolithic things that humans would get on top of and exercise power over humans, but they'd never done a temple of God or an image of heaven before. In fact, this is very counterintuitive to how humans would make up a religion. It must be that maybe there were other influences here, like God. So, and the trade network to get this much mass. Um, One person wrote that if you gathered all this bronze today into one place, you would have one thirtieth of all the bronze on the planet in one location. And we've been digging up copper and tin since Solomon. So it's arguable that as David conquered these nations and gathered these metals, that he had closer to maybe one eighth to one seventh of all the bronze on the planet in one location. And then you look at the gems and the jewels and the gold and the silver. This is an accumulation of world wealth that the world has never seen before. Um, And it it never has really seen since. Donald Trump might argue with that, but he has nowhere near the money that Solomon did. Nowhere near. That gets to be important when Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes that he tried everything and he had the money to do anything. And none of it led to life. He makes that claim with kind of some pretty historical evidence that actually nobody's been richer than Solomon before. Where did his wealth start? By doing the work of God. And, this, and it's not a promise that everybody who does the work of God is going to get wealthy. Hurum probably went home and went on to his next project. But when you tend to the things of God, the rest of life seems to just get easier. And for Solomon, that's the case. Solomon's the great proponent of prosperity gospel, right? Jeremiah is not. So we have very godly people in the Bible, some of which wealth is all over the place, and they're very wealthy people. The fact that there's a counter-argument, there's also people who live in poverty or you know, live in caves, and God loves them just as much, says how much money you have has nothing to do with how much God loves you. There's zero connection. 
But there are times where God wants a work done that requires resources. So he blesses people with resources so that that work can get done. And people that are in the ministry see this all the time. We had this thing we were going to do and the money just showed up to do it. Well, God had to bring that money from somewhere. And sometimes those craftspeople aren't, are like Huram. Huram's not necessarily of Israel, but he had the skills and talents and he's willing to work for the kingdom for this project and this job, so he does. So they make partnerships. Solomon makes alliances. He makes partnerships. And he's not as exclusive as we see the Pharisees in the first century. The original formation of Israel worked with other people in the world without compromise to their faith. Their faith was the one thing that didn't move, but that made it so that they could go out into the world and share that glory and that love with other people. Israel then becomes a city on a hill, literally, as Jerusalem sits on a hill, and this Temple Mount becomes the thing that you see when you approach that hill. This image, this copy of what heaven's all about. All of earth then points to this temple at this point. This house, this seat for a little box made of cedar, covered in gold, that has three different objects in it that represent the sins of Israel, covered by the mercy seat, overshadowed by the angelic cherubim of heaven, inside a box we can't quite look into yet. It's all beautiful. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.